Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast featuring me, Mike Calvin, Seb Stafford-Bloor of Tifo Football and Art de Rocher of The Athletic. If you were to draw up a blueprint for a successful football club, you'd come up with something like this. A huge fan base, passionate and committed. A city that understands the power of football's links to the community. A region with a long-established football culture. This club would matter. It would relate to its people. It could even be called something like Newcastle United. This is a big question, Seb. Why is it that Newcastle are in real danger of relegation? It's inertia, Mike. It's the same thing that we recognise in failing Newcastle teams again and again and again. It's a failure to recognise what's happening. It's a failure to address it. And it's a failure to equip the side with the tools it needs to a survive but also progress to develop because Newcastle never seem to go anywhere do they the Newcastle United we talk about now is the same one that existed really last season and the season before and the season before that it's a team that kind of exists to survive and it's very very sad I'm, I'm sure we'll we'll get on to Steve Bruce but to me I know it's it's there's still a a mole hunt underway I'm not quite sure what form that's taking but there is a Steve Reese will be determined to find out how it is that the press knows details of his um, of his training sessions. But I think that's indicative of that, that kind of uh, disaffection that's been described by that incident, by the, the Matt Ritchie affair. It's indicative of a team that aren't really happy, aren't really completely convinced by where they're going, and a group of players who seem a little bit disaffected by the idea of stasis. These aren't positive noises, and yet they feel very, very familiar at Newcastle. Yeah, well, you mentioned Steve Bruce. We might as well get on to him straight away, Art. The focus inevitably will be on him because right on cue, you've got a critical home game against his most recent club, Aston Villa, on Friday night. Yeah, one of many. All right. I mean, I think with this game coming up, especially with how I think the Wolves game went where 
I think arguably you could say Newcastle should have won that game and they only came away with a point. You're now going to need to turn those one-point games to three-point games. And especially with how the injuries have gone as well, I feel like there was maybe a a light at the end of the tunnel in January, February when Newcastle made those signings like Joe Willock on loan. That seemed like a, a signing that was almost a perfect fit for what Newcastle needed at the time. He's impressed since going there and has had an impact. I think even in nil-nil draw against West Brom, he was one of the people driving forward with the ball, which is something they didn't really have much of before he he signed. But when you take Miguel Almiron and Callum Wilson out of the team and you have to rely on Joe Ellington, uh, I'm not sure that's the best medicine for, for someone like Joe Willock. And I think there has been a, a bit of misfortune in, in that case. But again, I think... Newcastle fans in particular would have felt that those were problems that should have been solved before January. And now Steve Bruce is probably paying for that. Yeah. You, you mentioned the fans, the Toon Army. Very name actually suggests something, doesn't it? They've been confined to barracks for a year. I know it's a difficult thing to quantify, Seb, but what impact do you think the lack of fans at St James's has had over the past 12 months? You can spin it both ways, Mike. You can say that Newcastle as a side would have benefited from having a, a packed house of 50,000. And that's typically true of any team that tries to play behind the ball, particularly in big fixtures when big sides come to town. If you've got a crowd behind you, then it becomes an awful lot easier to sit in a resilient low block. That being said, I feel like this could have been a very, very unpleasant experience for Steve Bruce with a full house because I think the Newcastle fan base for a long time has been patronised. Actually, I think the media sometimes has been guilty of talking down to them, of overlooking their grievances and dismissing some of the issues that exist in that part of the world with the football team. And I think when that happens, when you have another chapter of that story, which this is, nothing against Steve Bruce personally, but it becomes antagonistic doesn't it so if you're if you're sat inside the stadium and if your kind of your irritation has been compounded by that uh, season ticket money mess that went on last year when the club um, failed to return standing orders and failed to cancel them and withheld money from supporters then you've got an awful lot of anger and it wouldn't take much more than a fairly disappointing result on a Saturday afternoon to uncork that anger and to make it extremely hostile and, as a result, much harder for the team to perform. Yeah, what about on the pitch, Art? You know, you've spoken about the paucity of attacking options that they've got. What about defensive issues? 17 goals conceded in the last 10. That's compared to seven by Fulham. Have they got enough or do they over-rely on that defence? I think at times it can be seen as over-reliance, but especially in, in January, I saw I saw them play at the Emirates. And I think at, if you're an outsider watching Newcastle, you expect them to go and sit behind the ball. But it was very apparent on that day, I think. So I was in the press box and Steve Bruce was probably, say, 20 metres in front of me. And he was always telling his defenders to get high, which is something I guess we'd probably associate with Jurgen Klopp or Pep Guardiola. I'm not trying to compare Steve Bruce to those guys, but there was 
a desire to defend a bit higher up the pitch. And I think with that came a bit more confidence. And then that confidence was just shot away with the injuries that they got. And I think then comes the the reliance again on defending a bit deeper where where you're conceding a lot of territory. And that's where I think Newcastle fans as well have been <laughs> become used to seeing that over the years. And I don't think that's what they particularly want to see. I remember in the week before the West Brom game, their their Twitter account posted a video of, of one of their wins against West Brom where Hatem Benafa just did... I can't even... Words can't describe what <laughs> what he did that day. And you look at that Newcastle team, which also had Pepe Cisse, and it just seems like it's a million miles away from that, where at the time they had players like Ben Arthur, Kabai, Demba Bar as well, that could really drag that team through a game. But I just don't feel they have enough players that are available and fit to do that this time around. Yeah. What about the practicalities of the situation, Seb? Do you think it's between Newcastle and Brighton for the final relegation place? If we assume that Fulham will maintain their upward momentum and both West Brom and Sheffield United are doomed? I think that's just about right. I mean, I I wonder about Fulham. Fulham... It's interesting because Fulham actually relates to the first question right at the beginning of the, the pod, Mike. If you see the progress, if you see the effect of coaching at Fulham and you see the ability of a manager, who a lot of people dismissed him on account of, I guess, his accent and where he comes from, from unfortunately, and they've been proven wrong. I just wonder whether they've given themselves a little bit too much to do. They don't score a lot of goals. I think they're starting to play some really good football, but they're in actually quite a similar position to Brighton in that, they're not quite getting what they deserve from games. So of the three, I would pick Brighton to pull clear. I'm aware of the kind of the XG argument in support of them and and how eventually the penny will drop and they will get their just desserts from the season. I think it's really between Fulham and Newcastle because I I think the big question for Newcastle is when is Callum Wilson back? When is Almiron back? Can they keep Sam Maxman fit eventually? Because that changes the picture a little bit. No matter whatever what their um what their deficiencies are elsewhere in the pitch, you put those three players into the starting lineup and you've got a puncher's chance against most teams. Maybe not top six sides, but most of them. So let's see. But I'm, I'm really encouraged by what Fulham are doing. I, it's it's nice because i got a lot of time for Scott Parker. I think he's a charismatic guy. If you've ever sat in a press conference with him, you know he's got a... There's an aura to him. There's a... I can completely understand why some of his players talking about are now talking about kind of running through brick walls and fire for him. It, it makes complete sense. So, I, yeah, a neutral choice, I guess. Yeah, Fulham at home to Manchester City on Saturday evening. They've still got to play at Chelsea and Manchester United in the run-in. Obviously, there'll be confidence generated by that win at Anfield. Art, can you dwell on Scott Parker a little, please? He seems to be part of a wave of of emotionally intelligent English coaches. You know, you hear him talk about VAR and you know what the club means, and and there's a there's a there's a man of real substance there, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. And I think what really where that really shone through was when Fulham had that whole COVID crisis where I think we almost forget about that. Like it was years ago when it was actually just a few months ago where a whole chunk of his squad tested positive. And I think to come through that as well and perform as they have been doing 
of late is is impressive to pay credit to his work this season. But I also think he's very good tactically. When you look at how Fulham almost imploded in the 2018-19 season with, uh, I guess you can point that to the spending in that season. But even little details such as Claudio Ranieri giving him credit for moving Callum Chambers into midfield where Chambers won their player of the season. And I think it's little things like that where you see he is a real thinker as well as someone who is emotionally intelligent, as you say, Mike, and is able to connect with people that are not just Fulham fans, but are football fans. And I think in terms of a football club, that that is just as important as what goes on on the football pitch as well to really propel that club forward in terms of their their outside image as well as what happens on the pitch. Mm. Do you think a possible issue will be goal scoring, Seb? You know, it's a little bit like Brighton. They're the XG dreamers, aren't they? They've only scored 22, and that means that only West Brom and Sheffield United have scored fewer. The attack, when you look at it, Lookman is impressive. He looks a really good player, but he's only scored four goals. Mitrovic, only two goals. And he seems to be one of those players who's possibly just too good for the championship, but definitely not good enough for the Premier League. They've got a problem there, haven't they? Without question. The the Mitrovic issue is really interesting, Mike, because I agree with you generally about where his place is in the game. I think he kind of sits between divisions. But to me, one of the problems that Fulham encountered right at the beginning of the season, actually, actually, one of the things that Scott Parker has done really well to work his way around is that Mitrovic at no point has really looked fit. He doesn't look like the presence he can be because at his worst or best, I guess, in a way, he's an absolute pain. Can you imagine playing against him as a centre-half? He'd be an absolute nightmare. He's, he's that kind of old-fashioned thrusting number nine type. And that just isn't him this season. His touch is off, his instincts in the box are off. Uh, obviously, his goal scoring is a long way from what it can be. And Fulham just haven't been built to survive or to, you know, score, to have another source of 20 goals. I mean, it's, and fair enough, because you don't come up from the championship with stacked the gills with 20 goal a season goal scorers. It just doesn't happen that way. And so, yeah, it, it's very much a risk to their survival because they're going to have to survive by committee. They're going to have to share around the goals. I think Adam Lookman has been absolutely brilliant at times. And it, it's so nice to see because he he kind of got bombed out a little bit at Everton. People talking about his attitude, which I thought was pretty premature with a young guy. Didn't have a great time second time around at Leipzig. You know, didn't look particularly happy. And now everybody's getting to see what a good player he really is. And that's lovely. It's just, it feels a little bit unfair to then say, right, well, you're going to shoulder this burden now because if you don't score goals, this team isn't going to survive because... Let's be fair, um, Ruben Loftus-Cheek, really gifted, but you know there's not enough tangible output there. And it's difficult. But I think the quality of their football should prevail eventually. I, I hope so, at least. But it would certainly be a lot easier if there were 10 goals coming from Mitrovic. Yeah, they do look you know, decent at the back now, don't they? Anderson seems to be emerging as a pivotal figure there. Can we just look at, again, the practicalities of the situation, please, Art? The key fixtures to come... You know, we can look at Newcastle at Brighton on March the 20th. But do you think the fight will go down to the final fixture of the season, which will be Newcastle at Craven Cottage on May the 23rd? I think possibly it could. When you look at how the teams are performing, as Seb uh, alluded to, they're not 
they're probably not getting the points they deserve at the minute. And when you're not consistent enough in that regard, I think that gives it every chance to go <laughs> as late as the final day. And I think over the course of the rest of the season that we've still got to play, personally, I, f- I feel either Brighton or Fulham could could get through ahead of Newcastle. I just feel their football is yielding much better performances. And especially with Fulham, when you look at Crystal Palace game, for instance, where they had so many chances and just didn't score. If they, they're able to turn that around, I think that they could really go on a really good run towards the end of the season. And one thing as well that I, I think is important to mention is uh, yes, Fulham have still got big teams to play, but when they've played against Chelsea earlier this season and even Liverpool at Craven Cottage, they gave them really good games. And I think if they take that into these next few games, they, they should have a, a real fighting chance of, of staying up this season. Yeah. What about Brighton, Seb? They're at Southampton at the weekend. I suppose you know, we... Readily praise Graham Potter for his principles. Again, we go back to practicalities. Is his team, does he create a team that's capable of grinding out the ugly wins and draws, a bit like Fulham have been? Interesting point, isn't it? I mean, I, I mean, I, grinding isn't a, a word I'd associate with Graham Potter or the style of play he's implemented down there. But I heard, um, I had a. A convincing argument the other day, and I apologies if um, if I've if I've stolen somebody else's idea, but it was on Twitter, and someone made the point that um, that okay, you can say that this team, you can describe this team as being unlucky, but then also if they're missing chances that their centre forwards, their you know wide attacking players, attacking midfielders, etc., if they're missing chances that those players aren't equipped to take that kind of falls under the realm of managerial responsibility. Now, I'm not smart enough to explain that in a better way, but that's an interesting, like, that's really what's missing, not a kind of a lack of grind, because I think that um, defensively they've, okay, defensively they've had a few bad moments this season. That 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 second goal they conceded against Leicester was a nightmare for the goalkeeper, and that's kind of, a, that's the, the story of their season, really, isn't it? It's uh, individual errors accentuating the kind of the costs of what they don't do at the other end of the pitch. But it's not a lack of grind, it's just a lack of precision or a lack of, sorry, this is going to be very, very clumsy, but a lack of the right kind of chance being created for a Mope or a Trossard or, or, or players like that. And that's uh, that's what's missing, I think. Yeah, I know uh, you're analytically inclined, couple of stats about Brighton. They're seventh in shots over on an average over 90 minutes, 13.2. And they're seventh also in the Premier League for significant chances missed. Is there any correlation between the two? And do we ever get to the point where statistics, damn statistics, basically telling us a few little white lies? I wouldn't say uh, white lies. I think, as you, I think, as everyone's seen, stats can be used for different arguments in different ways, and people can slightly misconstrue the way they use them on platforms like Twitter, especially. But I do think with Brighton, those stats, especially when you look at the shots they are having, the chances are good enough <laughs> to to be scored. I think it's just that that when you're in that position, I f- I can't remember who. 
was speaking about it, but it's almost as if the forwards and attacking midfielders like Trossard, like Mopé, Welbeck, for instance, are maybe just overthinking a little bit when they get in that situation because when you haven't scored for so long and you're finally in that position, you just maybe think about it for an extra second and then the chance is gone. There was a chance Aaron Colony had against West Brom, I think it was, where if you just maybe give it a little side foot instead of smashing it, it doesn't go over. It it just rolls in. And I think it's those little details where you don't really get in a stat in terms of the way a person took a shot. You kind of miss that little bit of detail. And I think it's not a question of maybe the stats telling lies with Brighton. It's just that the way they're taking those chances, I, I think anyway. Okay, staying on the numbers, Seb, when I think of... Sam Allardyce returning to another former club, Palace, with uh, Albion on at the weekend. All I see is a row of zeros. That's unlikely to be a classic, isn't it? Yeah, it's a game for people who like binary code, I guess, Mike. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, no, that's that's probably not going to be a thriller. You know what? Like, I'd be interested to get the take of you two on this. To me, I've been asked a couple of times what, what I think kind of the situation at West Brom and whether there's any any way back or why Allardyce hasn't performed his usual trick. To me, they look like a team that not aren't bothered where they stay in the Premier League, but feel a little bit lucky to be here. A lot of the players are kind of... It feels like some of his other projects, and I, I think of Palace, actually, and I think of the work he did when he came down there. You, you saw a, a, a team who needed to survive and players that were kind of willing to scrabble for the right to remain Premier League footballers. Whereas there's a kind of a, a day tripping vibe about West Brom, which to me feels like um, feels like one of the reasons why there hasn't been a significant improvement. That's not that's not to say there haven't been individual players who have benefited from um, from Allardyce's arrival, because I think there have been. It just seems like the needle hasn't really moved. They're not noticeably better or worse. They're kind of the same. There are moments when you watch the occasional set piece and you think, yeah, I can see Allardyce's DNA in that, or. The performance at Anfield is the one I always go back to when they were just stubborn as hell and, again, just were willing to kind of cling to that point for, for dear life. It's just an interesting thing. I don't see anything. I don't see signs of life from West Brom. And, and as a result, when you go into a game like this, you just think, okay, Palace are not going to get relegated. Palace are approaching a period of transition, most likely, with all of those players out of contract in the summer and the manager out of contract in the summer. And it's like they're sleepwalking towards a reset. And West Brom, you think, I don't know what you're sleeping, sleepwalking towards, but there's not enough energy for me to be convinced that you have any real hope of surviving. Yeah, I suppose when I look at Albion, I see almost 11 Mitrovic's players who are, <laughs> who are not quite good enough for the, not quite good enough for the Premier League and and probably too good a little bit for the for the Championship. If we look at them, do you think you know? I've seen some signs of of Allardyce's influence over the last couple of games but it all looks like too little too late doesn't it Art? Yeah I think even as Seb mentioned the Liverpool game and then you go on off the back of that into the Manchester United game where they actually took the lead and I think that Bruno Fernandes goal right before half time really really kicked them in the teeth because I think if they had got into half time they could have held out for a win in that game because Manchester United, although they were knocking on the door, I, I 
I was confident in that game that West Brom could actually do something with how they were set up, how confident Mbai looked at the top of the pitch as well. But <laughs> again, not getting those three points, it goes down to that consistency again. I just think that failing to get those three points in particular just really sucked the life out of the team. And when you're looking at the game against <laughs> against Newcastle, where I saw a few people almost like saying they should be celebrated for watching the whole night minutes <laughs> I think it's probably a bit too late for them to to properly feel like they're going to stay up and as you say Mike it, it's almost like just a expanded version of your Mitrovic argument and it, it doesn't feel like if if they were to go down I don't think many people would would argue to say that they deserve to stay up. Mm. What about the fallout from impending relegation at Sheffield United, Seb, it's looking increasingly likely to result in Chris Wilder leaving. At odds with the owner is a pretty familiar argument with an old school manager basically kicking off uh, the idea of the projected employment of a director of football over him or alongside him, whatever you want to say. It looks to me that if Wilder does leave Sheffield United, they could be sabotaging their best chance of coming straight back up. I think so. Uh, I certainly thought that six months ago, Mike. Chris Wilder's had a few funny moments this season. I mean, a few funny moments in front of the press, which I, I, I don't know enough about him personally really to judge, but it suggests, albeit tenuously, that... He's a man under a lot of pressure. He's a man that hasn't enjoyed parts of his job this season. And hey, that that director of football thing, I've got a bit of sympathy for him there because if you've done what Chris Wilder has done at Sheffield United, that is a hard thing to take. Like if someone wants to kind of dilute your role a little bit. But then what do you do in this situation? Because I, you, if you look at Sheffield United at the moment and you look at the kind of mistakes they make in games, it's suggestive of a disconnect between the coaching staff and the players, not a falling out, just a kind of a slight reduction in intensity that you get. That's similar to what happened, I don't know, at Spurs with Pochettino, for instance, or what some people are arguing is happening at Liverpool with Klopp. Do you chuck the baby out with the bathwater or do you say, I've got to bear the cost of renewing my squad and starting again? Because I... As we all know, that's kind of what a lot of these decisions come down to. What is it cheaper for me to do? Now, is it kind of, do I think that Chris Wilder could repeat what he's done at Sheffield United after they go down? Absolutely, because he's shown himself capable of that. And not just at Sheffield United, he did very good things at Oxford for people with a kind of a longer memory too. And he has a track record of improving players across the divisions. He can inherit a player and take them to a level previously thought beyond them. And that's a... That's a kind of a commodity that doesn't die in a manager. So it's interesting. I And also, listen, that ownership situation, I feel like that hasn't actually got as much attention as it's probably due because that's very difficult, something that went through the courts and something that rumbled on for a very, very long time. And for a while, it was, it was almost something that Sheffield United succeeded in spite of because in another club, you could fully, you could absolutely have seen that being a kind of the sort of the grey thundercloud that rained on everything else and affected performance. And it hasn't been. And I think that's a that's a really understated part of Wilder's performance. Like he's got the promotions, he's improved a lot of players, but he's also created that seal between playing staff and 
whatever the hell has been going on at boardroom level for quite a few years now. Do you see signs uh, that Manchester United uh, are finally entering the modern era? You know, they've basically just appointed Darren Fletcher as technical director to work alongside John Murta, who has got this sort of nebulous role of football director. Do you think that's a step change appointment at Manchester United, who've basically you know, been behind the curve on the whole idea of a director of football type figure? Yeah, I, th- I think it's very <laughs> interesting the way they've titled the role, it's, especially as you as you read it out, Mike, football director rather than director of football. And I think that kind of shows their attitude towards it in terms of coming to the party a little bit late and maybe being a bit reluctant to to give all that power to someone else. Whereas before, of course, when you're looking at the business they've done, it's been very business first rather than football first, I think, especially in the past eight years since Sir Alex Ferguson's departure. But in terms of going forward, it probably does mean they can be a bit more aligned in their work in the transfer markets. And I know a lot of Manchester United fans were very happy to see that kind of step be made. So they maybe avoid the the business type signings that have been made in the past few years. And if that is the way that Manchester United truly want to go, then it'll be interesting to see how that how Darren Fletcher's ideas marry up with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's and if they can create a real philosophy for the club, really, because especially this season, we've seen that, not that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer maybe is confused, but he has had to rely on a few different plans rather than one. And I think streamlining that could maybe help them become a bigger force than maybe they they have been over the last few years. Mm. Most immediately, there's a return of, of the ghost of seasons past on Sunday, the return of David Moyes to Old Trafford, Seb. I think his achievement at West Ham, you know, we still look down our noses at it. I think it's a fantastic achievement this season, isn't it? No one should be looking down their noses at West Ham, at David Moyes' achievements at West Ham. Honestly, like it's it's a conundrum that nobody's been able to solve for a really long time. If you look at what they've been since moving into the London Stadium, club who are not just able to spend a lot of money, but almost desperate to, almost to a fault. They want to spend money, they want to recruit, they want these players, they want names, they want attention. So they've had all the ambition, and yet they haven't really been able to get out of their own way. And under Moyes, you've got someone who has settled the dressing room, has purged it of players that weren't really interested in being there. I think if you look at the list of players that left the club this season or went out on loan, that's very, very telling. And also, if you reference that against some comments Mark Noble made last season about dressing harmony and who was um, who wanted to be there and who didn't, that's very interesting. So Moyes has dealt with that. He's installed a system which all of those players look to really believe in. And I, I'm not saying that as a kind of trite generality. Like, You've got a group who, that's the thing you associate with West Ham at the moment. Like They are a very collective side. None of those players are truly elite in their position. Maybe Suchek, he's really excellent. I you know, I'm, wouldn't argue that. But there's a, a togetherness and a cohesion about the way that West Ham play football, which they haven't had for a really, really long time. Because the model there previously seemed to be that 
if we get the right individual, if we could just sign the right check and get in the, the right sort of centre forward or midfielder, then that's the ticket to finishing above Arsenal or Spurs because that's the thing that West Ham want. And Moyes has been able to kind of purge that sort of, I don't know, it's almost like a desire to make a quantum leap in the game, isn't it, Mike? That it's just as easy as spending the right money in the summer. He's been able to methodically work through that process and build a team within a very, very short period of time. And he's been able to do it with, I'm going to be careful how I say it, a group of owners who aren't the easiest to work for in terms of kind of the decisions they make, but also the noise that they make. There aren't many owners who've got columns in the sun. So it's tricky. It certainly is. And it looks like Chelsea at the moment are probably going to end up as the the leading London club. I thought I'd throw that hand grenade in as, as soon as I could. You know, we, we do focus, despite, you know, we've talked about directors of football and everything else. Head coaches are can be compelling. And you've got two at Saturday, Saturday lunchtime, Marcello Bielsa and Thomas Tuchel, up against one another. That's going to be chess, isn't it, Art? Yeah, I think football, in a way, is becoming like chess very much. Uh, there's this... Spider-Man meme that I use quite a lot where there's a scene and um, Peter Parker's collecting a chess board and whenever a game goes looks like it's being played like chess I usually try and use that (laughs) but um, on 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 to Chelsea and Leeds I think what we've seen with Thomas Tuchel is what can really what teams can really benefit from when a manager has a tactical idea when they actually feel like there are patterns of play that can be used to to really surprise teams. And I think under Frank Lampard, although he had a, a good impact last season and had plans for Timo Werner, for instance, off the left earlier this season, I think those plans have probably become a bit clearer under Thomas Tuchel. And especially with how he's, I guess, been able to, to improve Christensen at centre-back, for instance, who who goes uh, maybe as a unsung hero at times because he's not an attacker, but similar to, I think, Aaron Cresswell at West Ham, where everybody likes to talk about Thomas Suchek, but Cresswell was just, was just as important to that earlier in the season, especially. But yeah, with Chelsea, I think the way Tuchel has come in with the plan has helped them a lot. When he comes to blows with Marcelo Bielsa, I think he'll be a very interesting chess match to watch (laughs) Mm. now I don't think there'll be too many chess moves in the North London derby that's been prefaced by the love-in between Jose Mourinho and Daniel Levy who's celebrating 20 years at Spurs now I know each of you is aligned or certainly associated with um, each of those clubs can you give me say, three respective reasons why Spurs or Arsenal can or will win the North London derby. Seb, can we start with you? What reasons for optimism have you got for Spurs to win what, for many fans, is the game? Three reasons, Mike. Uh, Gareth Bale, Harry Kane, Song Hyun-min. It's interesting because this game reminds me, if you remember the... um, do you remember the fights between Rocky Balboa and Apollo Creed where no one blocked, no one defended, no one moved their feet, they just swung haymakers at each other? It's a little bit like that because I think like, you could make a case for both of these teams having the firepower to win this game. 
and also both are really, really capable of the kind of stupid moments. Spurs have got huge issues at the back, clearly, and a goalkeeper whose form is a little bit fragile, should we say. So it, it, no result surprises me here, but you certainly um, you certainly back Spurs to score with that forward three, I think. Yeah. What do you think about Arsenal's chances, Art? I think it's going to be very interesting because of the, the week Arsenal have. Of course, they've got a lot of on their minds at the minute with where they find themselves in the Premier League table, but also fighting on European fronts. But I think the growing attacking options they've had over the past few weeks, you look at how Nicola Pepe's played both off the left and the right in, in this calendar year, and he has been very impressive. Willian as well coming into some decent form at the right time, I think, and as has Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. And I think when, when Seb mentions Tottenham's forward line, I could do just the same with Arsenal's, but it's just about finding the right balance between that and, of course, the individual errors that have plagued Arsenal throughout the whole season. That that Granit Xhaka moment at Burnley <laughs> is probably uh, a moment that summed up Arsenal's season, really, because when you look at the, the opening goal in that game, Mikel Arteta is praising Bernd Leno for playing out straight away. And then when he plays out to Granit Xhaka just before half-time, that happens. And I think when when you've got that, I guess, unpredictability headed into this game, you can make cases, more than three cases each for, for both teams, both teams winning. But um, I do feel that with Arsenal's record against Spurs at the Emirates, I think they, they may be a bit more confident going into this game than maybe if it was at, I was about to say White Hart Lane, but um, the, the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Let's sort of draw things to a close in an extended way, perhaps, looking at European issues at the moment. They're pretty prevalent. Let's first focus, if we could, Seb, on Liverpool. Deep breath, they got through against Leipzig last night. What were the lessons of that? They still looked pulsated at times. They were certainly very wasteful in front of goal. I suppose the great lesson is play Fabinho in his best position. Yeah, that's what I was going to start with, Mike. I think looking back, it's been a mistake to try and cover the uh, the defence with midfielders because that's just created imbalance in two separate areas that Liverpool haven't been able to cope with. I watched the game last night and I remember thinking probably as far into it as about 50 or 60 minutes, if Liverpool concede first here, they're in trouble because there was a kind of fragility to them that, and obviously given what's happened to them recently in, in domestically, conceding a goal in that situation, it was a home tie, but obviously not at Anfield. Like All of a sudden, they'd have been very vulnerable. Nevertheless, I felt like they dealt very well with a lot of what Leipzig tried to do. There was one Alexander Solov header, which came off the bar, and that was about as close as it got to you know, them conceding. And from that point onwards, the midfield balanced really nicely. I thought it was one of the best midfield displays I've seen from Liverpool in quite a long time. The attacking line was... Yeah, you're right. They were wasteful. And goodness, Mohamed Salah had some funny moments last night. You know, just some really uncharacteristic misses. Diogo Jota, perhaps we're a little bit more lenient on him because he's just come back from injury. But they created in a way that they haven't for a while too. There was a lot more verticality to their football I accept that maybe Leipzig had to be a little bit more urgent and as a result were more aggressive than they might have been. Obviously just couldn't settle for a draw, but it was encouraging. I, I don't know where Liverpool are 
long term throughout the rest of the season. And I don't know whether this is whether this is one of the situations where European football is kind of a relief from difficulties at home because we've seen that so many times before for teams. But it was it was good. It was a decent Liverpool performance, and given how bad they've been, that's a huge step forward, actually. Yeah. Did you get the same sense as me uh, over the last couple of days that we've almost seen a changing of the guard in, at European level? No Messi, no Ronaldo in the last eight of the Champions League. Where are we? Are we at a time of transition in or of the balance of power within European football? And where do you think Liverpool stand against the cities and the Bayerns, clubs of that stature? I definitely think we are at a changing of the guard, but even before going to the Manchester City, Bayern Munich, I think we have to mention PSG and Borussia Dortmund, just for the simple fact they have Kylian Mbappe and Erling Haaland. And I think the way uh, Mbappe performed at the new Camp in the first leg against Barcelona was just as good of a performance as his performance against Argentina in the World Cup. It was almost a kind of, wow, where were you? Obviously, everyone was at home. <laughs> but, uh, but were you able to watch that game live kind of moment? And I think Haaland had the same kind of performance against uh, Sevilla a couple of days ago in the Champions League. And those uh, are two people who I think wherever they go next in their careers, that club is going to be at the forefront of what happens in the Champions League, whether it be they stay at PSG in Dortmund, I'm not sure, or they go to a different European powerhouse. But I do feel that especially Barcelona's time has been coming for when they drop out of that kind of discussion of clubs who can seriously contend for the Champions League every season. With Juventus and Ronaldo, I think it was quite telling, especially when you look at um, Pavel Nedved's reaction. I'm not sure if you guys saw it after the game where he kicks the advertising boards. I think they they felt that would have been their real chance to maybe go ahead and actually win. But um, yeah, I think when when you see the current, the new generation of clubs that are impressing and have been impressing in the Champions League over the years, it definitely feels like a, a new era is about to begin. And it, I think it's going to kick off quite nicely over the next few years. Yeah. Agnelli bet everything on Ronaldo and lost. He's regurgitated his plans for the, you know, a restructure of the, of the uh, Champions League, a bloated version of it. Is this anything more, Seb, than self-interested insurance against his own incompetence? I mean, I, I would stop short of talking about incompetence probably because it feels like that's a familiar trait amongst a lot of super clubs. What I find particularly distasteful about uh, Andrea Agnelli's latest initiatives, in inverted commas, is this idea that we have to create a fail-safe for super clubs who can't manage themselves efficiently. When you're talking of an era where Barcelona are more than a billion euros in debt, despite fantastic financial advantages, despite having the privilege of arguably the finest player of all time in their side for more than a decade, some of the most gifted players the game has ever seen. So this notion that there should be, these clubs by right should have the ability to create a seal, to create an ironclad VIP room at the top of the game, whereby they can accentuate their already fantastic advantage. And they can also 
strip away all the vulnerabilities that they create for each other. Now, I understand that the Champions League reforms and the um, Agnelli's desire or ambition to enforce a ban on Champions League clubs signing each other's players, they are two very different things. And as far as the briefing goes, since that happened, it's been, it's been being made clear that those latter comments were made in his role with Juventus rather than the, with the European Club Association. They, ECA have, have kind of provided some clarity over that. Nevertheless, it does show you the appetite and what's in the wind. And if I talk too much about this, I start swearing. So I'm, I'm going to stop. But what I'll say is people need to be more afraid of this because I started watching football because... I was able to go to a game that was near my house with people that I liked or people that I knew or people I was related to. The thing that keeps you there relative to all clubs is this idea that you can support a club today that tomorrow is in a slightly better position. Now, that might mean moving up four places in League Two or moving between the you know the uh, a playoff position one year and automatic play, a promotion spot in the next. It might mean just shuffling up the non-league divisions. If you take aspiration away from football, which is kind of what this new initiative is shorthand for, why are you going at all? Like, What is the purpose? What is the attraction? Now, if I have children in the future and there is a, a, a quote-unquote Super League at the top of the game, which is sealed off, then how am I supposed to sell the idea of supporting a local team? Or how am I supposed to emphasize the importance of things like community when all that really matters is your access to revenue streams? And that's all that's going to matter on the playground. That's all that's going to matter on the computer games. That's all that's going to matter in any conversation which relates to football. And it just, it is the, I, I've become quite cynical. I've become quite dead behind the eyes with a lot of football. I'm getting older, it's just sadly true. But this spoils my blood, Mike. It's just the audacity of this, 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 this sort of aim to manipulate and bend and contort the game to the interests of just a very, very small group of clubs. Makes me sick. Yeah, well said. Ah, oh, I suppose the big clubs should be careful what they wish for. Yeah, I think if, especially looking from a fan's perspective. I don't think many fans, even of the big clubs, would agree with with that happening. When when you look at maybe the European clubs that maybe want to feel a bit more protected, yes, that can happen. But then <laughs> what happens when those streams dry up? And I think that's when maybe the, the thinking is a bit too nearsighted rather than looking at the bigger picture of things where you also need to remember where you came from a little bit where of course maybe clubs have big traditions but no no club was born as big as Barcelona was or as big as Real Madrid was every club has come through certain stages in in their in their in their history to get where they are now whether it be through a t- traditional sense of winning trophies to actually get your position there like say Manchester United under Alex Ferguson sorry Alex Ferguson sorry or as Manchester City have done with uh, owners, I think every club's had their own journey. And when <laughs> when you take the ability to to create new journeys with clubs that haven't been on those yet, you just kind of dilute what is the game everybody's grown up to love even before they knew what money was <laughs> or anything like that. And I think 
you just kind of take the purity away from it. And I don't think I've said it as well as seven. I don't think I can, but I totally agree with everything he said, because when, when you look at a prospect of just sealing off a section of European football to the greats and because this is audio, I just did a air quote sign. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't think, um, I don't think it's healthy in any way possible. No, and yeah, I again agree with you entirely, Art. I suppose, dear listener, if you're surprised by the rampant greed and sustained cynicism of the big clubs, you haven't been paying attention. Football's at a tipping point. It can either become a sterile piece of programming or it can return to its tradition as being a game that's central to its audience. Now that means to me, one thing, you, the fans, have a part to play. Reject this nonsense. Stand up for your rights. Do you agree? Please let me know. In the meantime, thanks to Art and Seb and to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.